0: Hello, and welcome to the Upper Room Podcast. We are a community of dreamers, doubters, and seekers rooted in and around Minneapolis, seeking to be alive through the words, actions, and presence of Jesus. Wherever you find yourself, however, you found us, welcome. Whether you're joining us for the first time or the 101st, we are so thankful that you'd invite us along into your day and walk the journey of being human together. Let these conversations encourage, awaken, challenge, and inspire you to live from your truest and most beloved self. So, settle in, and again, welcome to Upper Room.
1: Thank you, Jared. Thank you to our students and our mentors and um, just everyone who has invested in that students program. Thank you. Uh, It has meant so much to so many people uh, throughout the years. So uh, thank you for that. Well, good evening, Upper Room. My name is Jim. I am one of the pastors here. And uh, first off, happy Mother's Day. If nobody said that to you, happy Mother's Day. Uh, If you're a mom in any way or uh, desiring to be a mom, I hope you feel seen today. I hope you feel cared for and I hope you feel loved. Uh, It's a good day. Uh, And to all of us, thanks for being here tonight. Knowing, as Dan was kind of saying this... uh, these evenings are full of last things, right? And knowing that this is in some ways kind of the last normal gathering here at Upper Room. I mean, we we have next week, which will be a a gathering that will feel a little different and a celebration afterwards. Uh, But this is sort of the last week of normal worship or routine worship here at Upper Room. I just want to say that I'm uh, humbled and consider it an honor to be here sharing this message tonight So thank you. Um, And as I was sitting with this message this week, I was feeling the nudge to offer uh, some glimpses of hope and some ideas of of the ways that God might be working in and through our community. Um, And this is not my attempt to make everything okay or to fix it all for us or to remove any sadness, Um, rather just to help us hold the tension of grief and hope at the same time. So uh, if this is not uh where you're at this evening uh in a message of hope that's okay, you can feel free to take a nap, as Dan said. uh you can feel free to just tune me out or maybe hold some of this stuff for a later time, but just know upper room that I am grateful for you. I'm still in the intro what's uh <laughs> Uh, let's pray together. God, we thank you for this space. We thank you for this community. We thank you for the, uh, the people that you've surrounded us with. And we just pray that you are uh, in it with us. Your presence is uh, remaining with us. And God, we pray that, uh, that your presence gives us hope and helps us through these times. God, we thank you for, uh, for you. And we thank you for your presence. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, So the scripture that we're going to be looking at this evening is from the Gospel of John. And it's sort of an odd scripture to be looking at at this time because it's out of order. It's out of the chronological order that we would normally be finding ourselves in. It comes before the death and resurrection of Jesus. Usually at this time of year following Easter, churches like to talk about uh, the the time that follows Jesus' resurrection which is what we celebrate at Easter, and talk about this time between, as we're calling our series, The In-Between, this time between the resurrection of Jesus and Jesus sending or God sending uh, God's spirit upon Jesus' followers. But this set of verses in John that we're going to be reading in just a moment comes at the point just before Jesus' arrest and trial. And these verses are a foretelling of the time when God's spirit will be sent on God's people. Uh, Sarah used the term last week, a forebrightening, and I like that term. Uh, These verses are a forebrightening for what is to come. So let's read it. Uh, John 14, 15 through 21. Jesus says this, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the Father and he will send another companion who will be with you forever. This companion is the spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor recognizes him. You know him because he lives with you and will be with you. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my father. You are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them loves me. Whoever loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love them and reveal myself to them. Oh, this is one of the verses that I'm like, oh, silly Jesus, can't you just say something that makes sense? <sighs> let's, let's read it one more time. Uh, I think maybe just reading it a second time might might help us a little bit. So John 14, Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. I will ask the father and he will send another companion who will be with you forever. This companion is the spirit of truth whom the world can't receive because it neither sees him nor recognizes him. You know him because he lives with you and will be with you. I won't leave you as orphans. I will come to you Soon the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live too. On that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Whoever has my commandments keeps keeps them, loves me. Whoever loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love them and reveal myself to them. So, let's see if we can dig a little deeper into what I think is a little bit of a word puzzle from Jesus and talking directly to his disciples. And I think it's helpful if we can put ourselves in the disciples' shoes for a moment, and in doing so, let's set the scene. Jesus is meeting with his friends. They're sitting around a table. They're eating together. They are sharing a meal before this high holiday that is the Passover celebration, a really big deal in uh, ancient Jewish practice. This is uh, the final meal before Jesus is arrested. This is probably the same meal where we get the communion words from. You know, when Jesus says, like, this is my body broken for you, and this is my blood shed for you. That's written about in another book, but it's essentially the same meal. It's a big deal. And all of these verses fall in the middle of a longer speech by Jesus, telling the disciples all sorts of things, but mostly preparing them for what is coming and in doing so in really strange and sort of cryptic ways. there If you can imagine, there are probably a couple of disciples sitting across the table. They're probably arguing about something. Uh, Peter won't stop talking with food in his mouth because, you know, he just doesn't care. And, and Judas is probably, you know, hiding his phone, texting the, the Roman soldiers and the chief priests saying like, I don't know when we're going to get to the garden. Jesus keeps talking, you know, like that's the scene that we're dealing with right now. But as Jesus sits with his friends, this is what he is saying. He first instructs them what it means to love Jesus or what it means to love him or follow him, which is to obey his commandments, which is loaded in itself. But then a chapter later, he plainly says that obeying his commandments means to love each other as I have loved you. And then in these verses, he, begin, he continues to say, as you love each other, you will be loving Jesus, and you will be loved by the Father. So there's this reciprocal relationship of love. And part of the Father's love is to receive God's Spirit as a companion, which they will need because Jesus will be leaving. But in Jesus' leaving, God will not leave them. But remember, this all hasn't happened yet. This is before Jesus' arrest. All of this is pointed to, pointing to the events that are coming up, the events of Jesus, Jesus being put on trial, being killed, being raised from the dead, and then revealing himself to the disciples, and then leaving again a second time and sending God's spirit to be with his followers. That In that moment, we can read about it in, in Acts 2. So as a disciple... You're a disciple. You're a leader. Your friend, the person you're at a table with, the very person you look to for guidance, instruction about everything in your life at this point, because that's all you do is you follow Jesus around. That person, that that is your connection to faith and your connection to God, is going away. At this point, Jesus is what their life operated around. I bet if I was one of them, I would have felt confused and troubled. Sad and afraid and so many more things. So with all these complex uh, phrases from Jesus and these feelings that, that the disciples are probably experiencing, I want to actually zoom out of the passage a little bit. I don't want to focus on any specific word or sentence or phrase in the passage. Rather, like ask the question, what is, what is Jesus doing here? Why is Jesus saying all this now before his death? What is Jesus trying to accomplish Jesus is preparing the disciples for significant change and offering reassurance that it will be okay. Jesus is starting to get them to think about what is next. What does life look like without him? Jesus is explaining there will be a new reality and he's trying to emotionally prepare his disciples and provide them with some reassurance that in the new reality, they will not be alone assuring the disciples that God is not abandoning them, but rather God is doing some pretty significant things with them and through them. But naturally, the disciples don't really understand what's going on. And I don't think we should expect them to. I don't think we should have this expectation that they should just get it. This passage is confusing. And maybe it's meant to be confusing because the reality of Jesus not being present for the disciples doesn't make sense to them. So when Jesus says something like, you know the place that I'm going. And then the disciple Thomas responds, no, we don't, Jesus. It's because they don't know. They don't get it. And why, why would the main catalyst for God's kingdom need to leave for the betterment of God's kingdom? That doesn't make any sense. The disciples are in the dark. The only thing that makes sense is, this, is that the disciples don't get it. I get this image of like, walking around my house when it's dark and I have all the lights off and I don't want to wake anybody up, and so I'm just, like, feeling the walls, you know? Like, I don't know what's in front of me. That's, like, the image that I get. Just dark. Does does anybody know what the darkest place in the world is? Like, physically the darkest place in the world? Any guesses? Cave? What was that? That's it the deepest part of the ocean, a, a trench really, really deep in the Pacific Ocean. So the bottom of the ocean, the darkest place in the world. Uh, so I've been reading this book. Or I, a few months ago, I read this book called An Immense World. It's about, the, it's about animals and the way they perceive the world and how they perceive the world differently than we do because they have different senses, and so they're talking about sight. And in, and in this chapter of sight, they're talking about the animal with the biggest eyes in the entire animal kingdom. Any guesses? The giant squid. Weird, right? Eyes the size of basketballs. So the giant squid lives at between 1,000 and 2,000 feet deep in the ocean, And uh, it lives, this area is called the twilight zone because it's where light begins to stop penetrating. So it just starts to get really, really dark at 2,000 feet deep. Now, this trench in the middle of the Pacific Ocean goes all the way down to 36,000 feet deep. There's 34,000 feet of darkness in the ocean. They say they can't study the giant squid because it lives too deep. What about that other 34,000 feet? That's crazy, right? There is like this flourishing ecosystem beyond this giant squid twilight zone level that we have no idea about. There's this darkness that is filled with life and things happening and things going that we can't see and that a giant squid can't even see. What if the same is true for the kingdom of God? I think what this scripture shows us is that the kingdom of God, that the ways that God is working in the world goes so much further and deeper than what the disciples can see. The way God is at work beyond what we can see is so vast and deep, it simply leaves us in the dark at times, maybe confused. But Jesus Jesus reassures the disciples that God will not leave them. The presence of God will continue to guide them through this darkness. This idea reminds me that God's story, the story of God, does not stop at what we can perceive or what we can even imagine. The goodness of God always finds a way to continue, both on the global scale and with you and I. God will continue to be at work beyond what we can see and will continue to lead and guide us through the dark places in our lives. So as Jesus is having this conversation with his friends, he is not only assuring them that the the story of God will continue, he's also preparing them in a way for some significant change. Preparing them emotionally and spiritually for something new. He's starting to move them from one faith concept, one faith idea, one faith practice to another. What is that next thing? Well, Jesus will be gone And with that, their entire life will be turned upside down. Their teacher, their rabbi, their leader is going away. And they will have to figure out a way to lead themselves or tap into that spirit of truth, that companion that God will provide. Jesus promises the spirit of God to be their companion, but I imagine that's got to look so different and feel so different than the physical presence of Jesus. Their connection to God was tied up in that physical connection to Jesus the man that washed their feet, the man that led them through towns, the man that taught them. Their connection to God was tied up in that. And now they have to figure out this new container to hold their faith. And I would also argue that they have to figure out a whole new reality for their world around them. Because in just a few short days, there will be a new political reality. And the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders will emphatically say, through the killing of Jesus, that they will not tolerate, tolerate proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah. So they have to figure out a new world. I think that is why Jesus tells the disciples several times that he's going away. Let me remind you, I'm going away. I'm going away. He is emotionally and spiritually preparing them for what it's next. For what is next? It's sort of like um, when I'm when I'm at the park with my kids. And I'm like, hey, we're leaving in five minutes. If I went, hey, it's time to go, they'd be like, no! And they just run the other way because they don't want to leave the park. They want to they wanna stay and play in this place that they love and this, this thing that they're enjoying. And instead, I say, hey, you got five minutes. It's like, we're warning you. I'm warning you. Start wrapping your minds around leaving this fun place and going into the boring car, you know, like that type of thing. This process of moving people from one spiritual place to another is a theme throughout scriptures. God is in the work of moving people from one reality to the next, preparing God's people to face the next spiritual, political, and life reality. And in this and in this scripture, Jesus is trying to do this with his disciples. This moment, Jesus acknowledges that their faith container, their faith, faith ecosystem is going to change. Um, this may be a funny connection, but... Um, but I, I think it'll make sense. I hope it makes sense. Uh, does anybody remember the car company called Scion? Anybody remember that? Does anybody have a Scion? Oh, that's funny. No one had one. I really, really wanted one. I thought they were so cool. So the Scion was like this this offshoot brand of, of Toyota. They were like inexpensive, edgy looking cars. I wanted the the one that looked like a box, you know, the XB. Those ones were cool, Um, but they were inexpensive. They were edgy, and they were meant to appeal to young people like 20-year-old Jim that wanted the XB. Uh, So Toyota debuted this brand in 2003, and then they discontinued the brand in 2016. And some may look at a 13-year run for a car brand as like, well, that kind of failed. That didn't work very well. That's pretty short for a car company. Uh, I mean, Ford's been around for 120-plus years, right? Uh, Sounds like it didn't work. Maybe. But what if there was uh, a different story? What if there was a different narrative? So Scion's main purpose was to attract a younger customer base to the overall Toyota brand. Prior to the inception of Scion, most Generation X and Millennials had a negative view of Toyota. They thought it was the old person's car. Now I drive a Toyota, I guess I'm an old person. <laughs> um, but then the year before Scion closed its doors, it, uh, it had almost 30% of all, or 30% of Toyota brand sales were going to the younger generations. So what if it just took 13 years to move people from one brand to Toyota? What if it took 13 years to move people from one place to another? What if from Toyota's perspective, that's all it wanted to do? It just wanted more customers. It wanted to grow their customer base. And it was a wild success for 13 years. It's a different story. It's a different narrative. I firmly believe that one of Upper Room's most pronounced legacies will be how this community was able to invite people in wherever they came from with whatever faith, church, or spiritual baggage and hurt or unknowns they carried along with them gave them space to process, wrestle, and reimagine a faith. A spiritual identity that was a whole lot less tired, a whole lot less weary, And a whole lot less pain-ridden. And would become more personal and hopeful and flourishing. A faith that is disconnected from an institution. A faith that honors their personal connection to God. And how their story is intertwined with God's goodness. Some may say 21 years. Oh, that was a pretty good run. Just didn't work that well in the end. Uh, What if we choose to tell a different story? It worked just like it was supposed to. Moving people, you, me, us, God's people, into a new faith, a reality that could flourish wherever we find ourselves next. So as Jesus sits with his disciples, acknowledges the thing that the disciples are focused their life around him is going to change. Jesus is assuring them that this change will be full of God's goodness. Jesus says, it is a good thing that I'm going away. Two chapters later in in chapter 16, he says, but very truly I tell you, it is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the spirit Or the companion will not come. But if I go, I will send him to you. And this feels backwards. Let's name it. It feels backwards. How could the physical presence of Jesus not be as good as this seemingly nebulous idea that the Spirit of God will remain with God's people? But maybe, maybe there's something in this disruption that encourages a flourishing faith for the disciples. Maybe they need an awakening of sorts. So what I mean is this, another animal analogy for you all. There's this term used in Earth uh, ecosystems and environmental changes that's called trophic cascade. Trophic cascade. And I'm about to tell you in about 20 seconds everything I know about trophic cascade. So just so you know, I'm not an expert. It's a term that indicates uh, one change to an environment that has a dramatic effect on all other aspects of the environment. So an example of this is back in 1995, Yellowstone National Park was experiencing overpopulation of deer and elk. There was a lack of predators in the park, so the elk just, and the deer just kept populating and growing, their population just kept growing and they just kind of stayed in single areas because no nothing was hunting them and they just started uh, overfeeding these areas and creating these barren and dead and struggling landscapes. So park officials decided, we're going to introduce another predator into this environment. And they introduced wolves into the environment, small packs of wolves, not very many. Then some crazy stuff happened. Because of the wolves, the elk and the deer population decreased, as you think it would because they were being hunted. But then it also sent the elk, sorry, the elk and the deer populations decreased. And then it sent the elk and the deer on the move. They started traveling around because they were being hunted and they didn't want to get Killed, so uh, so the plants and the trees that they were grazing on that were dead and barren started to regenerate and and flourish and came back at an incredible rate, and because of that growth in trees and plants, birds started to return to Yellowstone, and then the beavers because they like trees started to return and grow in population. And they created dams, which created even more habitats for other animals like otters and ducks and fish and reptiles. So those populations started to grow. Then the number of rodents, rabbits, and foxes grew, which means more hawks and eagles and predatory birds uh, came into the picture. And then bear populations out of nowhere uh, started to rise because there was more animal carcasses and more berries to feed on because of the regenerating trees. But even more happened. The regenerating forests stabilized the banks of the rivers, and the rivers stayed more fixed and created conditions for less erosion. So channels narrowed, and more pools formed, and more shallow sections came, which created even more habitats for more animals. The rivers and the landscapes of Yellowstone physically changed. The wolves A few small packs of wolves literally transformed the physical geography of Yellowstone National Park. Because of this one change, the ecosystem of Yellowstone began to flourish. Maybe, maybe, there's something that happens in this disruption for the disciples. That changing their faith container brings them to a place where their faith can flourish more. That moving from a place of following a single person to allowing the spirit of God to guide them to new places like Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth as Jesus asked them to do. Perhaps there is there is a necessary thing that happens in Jesus' departure that couldn't or wouldn't happen otherwise. So I think this begs the question for us. How does a change in our faith ecosystem and altering of our faith container lead us to greater, greater flourishing. And please, I'm, I want to be careful to say, I'm not saying that upper room closing and that change is a good thing and that we should be excited about it. That's not what I'm saying. Rather, what I'm saying is that this disruption, this change of our ecosystem, there can be good that emerges. There can be a new place that God leads us that allows us for greater flourishing. This is the story of Jesus. This is also the task of the Christian to view everything through a resurrection lens. That when there is death, we grieve and we mourn. And we look ahead with hope that on the other side, somewhere, there is new life. One thing in this promise that Jesus gives his disciples as he foreshadows his death and promises the spirit as a companion is that God does not abandon God's people. God does not leave the world to fend for itself. God does not say good luck. God does not say, hey, I tried my best. Nothing else I can do. No, Jesus says, I will remain with you. He says, on that day, you will know that I am in my father. You are in me and I am in you. And that may be the greatest gift of all. No matter where we find ourselves in two weeks, in two months, or in two years, it's that our God remains. Our God does not abandon. We have a God that is working far beyond what we can see, leading us from one faith location to another and bringing us to a place of flourishing. And this is my prayer for us upper room that we continue to feel the presence of our good, good God, no matter where we find ourselves in the future. Amen? Let's pray. God, you are a God of presence, that promises to be with your people. God, we ask for your presence. As we come closer and closer to the end of Upper Room, we ask that you're your presence gives us peace and hope and assures us that from what we can't see in front of us that the way that you're moving us is full of your goodness and the way that you're shaping this time is full of your goodness as well god be with us be with this community in your name we pray amen
0: thank you for joining us in today's conversation we are so grateful that you invite us along on your journey no matter where you're listening from, you are a part of our community. And we love to get the word out to others who are walking this path as well. Some ways you can help us do that is to hit subscribe on whichever app that you listen to podcasts. Also, take a moment to leave us a review. The more positive reviews, the more we are able to get the word out and share these conversations with others who are companions on the journey. If you've been encouraged here, please consider supporting our work by becoming a monthly sustainer. Monthly giving is the best way to ensure that we can continue to provide meaningful conversations and community, both in person and online. To give in any amount, simply go to urminneapolis.org. Slash give. That's o r g slash give. And now, wherever your day takes you, may you know that you are God's beloved, and in that truth, find yourself ever more alive in the words, actions, and presence of Jesus. Go in peace, friends.